The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. It's good to be together this morning as we now look at God's Word. And some of you know, but some of you don't, that Pastor Dan, Pastor John Nallen, Pastor Ben are all away with our middle school and high school students. Over 200 people are off at Camp Lebanon, and they're hearing God's Word preached this morning. So we're going to pray for them and for us as we jump into Daniel this morning. Would you join me as we pray now? Father in heaven, we do ask that the name of Christ would be greatly exalted. We thank you that you are with us wherever we're gathered. And we pray even for our students this morning, Lord, as they hear your word preached, that their hearts would be bent towards you, that they would trust you and love you and delight in who you are. And do that, we pray, for us this morning, that as we look at your word, you would enliven our hearts to see more of Christ. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. I was scanning the news this week and, and, and saw a story that sort of captured the brokenness of our world. I recently read a story coming out of Afghanistan, and I checked with one of our global partners to, just to see, is this true? Because it sounds so untrue, unlikely, and he said it, it, it could be true. And, and it was that Afghanistan, in Afghanistan, there are some parents who have, who are so impoverished right now because of the state of the political affairs there that they have resorted to selling their kidneys in order to feed themselves and to feed their own children. Parents are forced to make the horrifying decision, do I let my own children starve to death or do I undergo a surgery to remove one of my kidneys to sell it for 1500 U.S. dollars to pay my debts and, and to feed our family. Others have even resorted to selling some of their own children to eventually become child brides in order to feed their other children. It, it, it's a devastating, horrific situation that just makes you simultaneously want to turn away and, and cry at the same time. We live in a broken and sin-ravaged world. We live in a broken and sin-ravaged world. And closer to home, we also feel all the stings and stains of sin as well, don't we? We, we see lives around us, and perhaps even our own, that are torn apart by sin and suffering. We see the destructive power of disease and depression and even death. We grieve the losses that kind of pile up and weigh heavy on our hearts. And, and some of us just want to scream. This isn't the way life is supposed to be. This isn't how God designed the world. He looked at everything after creation and said it was good. And, and yet we live in a world with such brokenness. Where so many things just aren't any good at all. It's undeniable if all of us just think for a little bit or look long enough that we live in a broken and sin-ravaged world. We know that we're not living in the Garden of Eden. Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz puts a voice to it this way. Toto, I've got a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. We're not yet home, but we await our heavenly dwelling place. If we look at the world, 
If we look at our own lives, these are some of the questions that come to mind and we want answers. Is God still there in a place like Afghanistan where people are selling their own kidneys or selling their own children? Is God still on his throne? Is God still God in a world where there's such horrific things taking place? Is there any hope for our shattered dreams or crumpled bodies or mangled souls? Where do we look to in such heartache and suffering at work in our world? And these questions that we might be asking are not just our questions, but they are the very questions that were being asked in Daniel's time. These were the questions that were being asked by the ancient Israelites as they were brought off into exile. The book of Daniel was written to a people that were severely battered and broken by this wicked and evil nation, Babylon. They knew the brokenness of the world in which they lived, and they saw how sin ravaged it was as well. They were shaken and shocked that God's people, Judah, was brought off into exile, that their king was taken away. This defeat left them asking one central question. Is God still sovereign? Is God still sovereign? Because it doesn't look like it. The nation of Judah, this is God's people. And we're being carried off into exile. We're being removed from the promised land that God said he would give to his descendants forever. He said we would be here forever. He said he would establish a king like King David that would last forever. And yet now we're being carried off into exile. Is God sovereign? That's the question. And and that's the question I want to answer this morning by looking at Daniel. Daniel was written to bring comfort to a devastated people and to bring encouragement to those who had been completely overwhelmed with the circumstances and situation around them. And the chief message of Daniel is this. Yes, God is still sovereign. But not only is God sovereign, he is upholding and sustaining his people to live faithfully in the world. God is sustaining and upholding his people to live faithfully even in exile. And so our plan is to walk through this chapter, chapter 1 of Daniel And to see three scenes that are taking place here and how we might then apply that to us and our broken and sin ravaged world. So scene one verses one through seven is kind of Babylonian domination, Babylonian domination. Daniel begins with a summary of the devastating events and verses one and two, a lot is sort of captured in that. And so we'll spend a little bit time unpacking that. Let me just read that again. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, King of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them into the land of Shinar to the house of his God and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. This is a picture of Babylonian domination and a description of exile. From the looks of things, it looks like God has been completely defeated. God's king of the nation of Judah, is now carried off. The people are carried off. And to add insult to injury, 
the vessels of the house of God are being carried off. So, you know, you know, especially the women who are studying Exodus, that all the implements in the temple that were used to serve God, to conduct all the sacrifices that Solomon commissioned back in 1 Kings chapter 7, all made of pure gold, all of those things are being carried off into exile. They're going into the house of the God of Nebuchadnezzar. So this would consist of the golden altar, the golden table for the bread of presence, the ten lampstands of pure gold, gold tongs and cups and snuffers and basins and dishes for incense, fire pans, all crafted from pure gold, along with all sorts of other things made of silver and bronze. They are all being carried off. First Kings 7, 13 to 51. These are all the things that have been used in the worship of the one true God, and they have just been carried off. This is devastating for an Israelite. Seemingly, the God of Nebuchadnezzar is greater than the God of Israel. Let me just read a little bit of uh, one verse from 2 Kings 24, 14 that, that summarizes this domination. It says this, he, that's Nebuchadnezzar, carried away all Jerusalem and all the officials and all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives and all the craftsmen and the smiths. None remained except the poorest people of the land. So all of Israel so decimated that all the, all the soldiers are, are, are carried off, all the blacksmiths, all the craftsmen are carried off. Only the very poorest of the poor remained in the land. And so it looks from all appearances that God is not sovereign, that he has been defeated and Babylon is the only show in town. But look with me at verse 2. It says this, the writer of Daniel, Daniel says this, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. Despite the devastating circumstances, God still is in control. Despite how dire, disastrous things seem, God still sits on his throne. And we have to see this to, to make sure that we get this for sure. In 2 Kings, it records God's impending judgment against Judah. 2 Kings 23, 27. And the Lord said, I will remove Judah also out of my sight as I have removed Israel. So God has already judged and exiled the northern kingdom of Israel into exile. And the southern kingdom, Judah, looks at this and sees this. And yet they still disobey God. And 2 Kings 23, 37 says, Jehoiakim did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So this exile, this devastation, isn't a surprise. It isn't because God isn't sovereign, but it's actually because he is sovereign. He is judging this wicked and evil people. All of this background sets the stage for the story in chapter one. It appears on the surface that Babylon has won, that they are stronger than God. The gods of Babylon, the gods of Nebuchadnezzar are greater and yet God is still sovereign, sits in the heavens, rules and reigns. And that's one of the broad themes of Daniel as a whole. We, we see sort of the, the, the actions and the words of men. And yet God sits in the heavens and rules over it all. 
God is sovereign over all things, no matter how disastrous and dire things look. And that's one of the things I hope we take away from this book as we go through it in 16 sermons. That no matter how dire or disastrous your circumstances, your situation may appear, God sits in the heavens. He is sovereignly ruling and reigning, and he has not lost control. Now, look with me at verses 3 to 7. The story begins in verse 3. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish and good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. So here we have Nebuchadnezzar, implementing his re-education or assimilation plan as he conquers a nation. He carries off all of the youth. So Daniel and his three friends are probably 12 to 16 years old. Their parents have probably been killed. They're the cream of the crop physically and intellectually. And they are going to get re-educated. They're going to a concentration camp or college or you know, some mixture of the two. And, and I'm not, you, you, you get it. And, and they're going to be re-educated in the literature and language of the Chaldeans. Now look at verse five. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. So in addition to these three years of intellectual indoctrination, they were given some of the finest of the king's food and drink. So here's Nebuchadnezzar's kind of standard plan. It's fivefold kind of indoctrination. Remove them from their homelands, remove them from their families, educate them in the Babylonian language and literature so that their worldview would change, fill their stomachs with Babylonian food and delicacies, give them the finest, and then finally change their names and identities. Here's what's in view. If we can get them to think like us, talk like us, live like us, and even eat like us, then they'll become like us and not turn against us and instead turn their back on their God. Notice that Daniel and his friends were all of the tribe of Judah. Verse 6, the tribe from which the Messiah would come. I think that's significant. It's also significant that all of their names have some connection to the God of Israel, Yahweh or Elohim, and now it all alludes to Babylonian pagan gods. Belteshazzar refers to the god Bel or Marduk. Shadrach refers to Aku, the moon god. Meshach now means who is like Aku or Abednego means the servant of Nebo. So they're fundamentally changing their identities. Forget about Yahweh and now here's your new name and identity. The pressure is to compromise in a new place with new names, with new language and new history and even a new menu. And yet surprisingly, these 
12 to 16-year-olds stand firm. But the question for them is, how are we going to stay faithful in exile? Is God still working? And this leads us to the second scene in verses 8 through 16. So we saw Babylonian domination, and now we see Daniel's faithfulness. Verse 8, Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. So, Daniel says, I'm not going to eat that food. Now, we don't know exactly why this would have defiled them. I think there's four possible reasons. The first reason would have been that Daniel and his friends were either vegetarians or they had taken a Nazarite vow that they would only eat vegetables. And yet we know that they're probably, they're not vegetarians because in later in Daniel chapter 10, verse 3, he says when he was grieving, he stopped eating meat or drinking wine during a period of mourning, which confirms that he normally ate meat and drank wine. The second reason was that the food wasn't kosher, meaning that it was, had unclean animals or wasn't prepared correctly, like the blood was still in it, and yet they still didn't drink the wine, and wine wasn't prohibited and wouldn't have been unclean. So that doesn't fully explain it. The third possibility is that these royal food rations were associated with idol worship. So they were offered to Babylonian gods or blessed by Babylonian priests, and and so they didn't want to partake of them. And yet they still eat the vegetables, which probably would have been offered to their gods as well. A fourth reason is that Daniel and his friends view the eating of this food as swearing their allegiance to Babylon and to the Babylonian gods and kingdom. So what's the right answer? I think it's a combination of these things because the text doesn't tell us exactly. It's that, yes, the food wasn't clean and yes, it had been offered to idols. But Daniel and his friends wanted to make clear That in this season of three years, we need to take a stand and show that our allegiance is to Yahweh, is to God alone. And how are we going to do that? We're going to reject the king's food and wine and show that our dependence is going to be on God and God alone. The emphasis throughout this section hasn't been on unclean food, but it's it's the king's food. It repeats that three times, verse 8, verse 13, and verse 15. It's the king's food. And so instead of partaking of the king's food and wine, they say, test us for 10 days. And we see that after 10 days, they look better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. Daniel is not making a case for being a vegan or a vegetarian or for diet and exercise. Daniel and his friends are taking a stand when it would be easy to conform and to accommodate and to compromise. It's easy to go with the flow down the lazy river of Babylon instead of swim upstream against its customs. Daniel and his friends do not conform. So this is not about fad diets and the Christian life in Romans 14, 17 says, it's not ma- the Christian life is not mainly a matter of eating or drinking, but this is mainly about who are we going to trust when we get carried off into exile? Who are we going to look to? Who do we believe? And back in verse 2, we see that it's God who gave Judah into captivity. And here in verse 9, we see it's God who gives Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. So Daniel and his friends trust 
that God is in control. God's sovereign, sustaining grace is at work in this miracle. There's no apparent reason that just eating vegetables for 10 days would make them look more healthy or, or fatter in appearance. Now, how do we apply this to us today? As we face our own challenges, Daniel teaches us that we need to trust God. The pressure to compromise is everywhere today. There are pressures for us to lie or cheat to avoid financial ruin or to gain financial rewards. There are pressures for us to conform to the spirit of the age, to call biological men women or to call biological women men in order to be accepted and to avoid accusations that were bigoted. There are subtle pressures to conform through media and entertainment and the arts. There are pressures to speak only for or against a political party in order to join or remain in a particular tribe. There are temptations for us to allow technology with all of its blessings and curses to control our lives. There are pressures on the church to evolve the Bible's teaching on sexual ethics so that we keep in step with the LGBTQ plus revolution. There are pressures within the church to water down worship or preaching or discipleship so that we can attract more people and grow bigger. If only we would just make it a little bit more accessible. Stop talking so much about the Bible and what the Bible teaches and just give people what they want. Feed itching ears. And the question is, what will we do in our workplaces, in your neighborhoods? Will we walk by faith or will we be devoted to God. And some of you may wonder, well, which hills do I die on when I'm faced with these questions? Because I know many of us are faced with these questions regularly. On what issues do I take a stand? Now, just notice, Daniel doesn't say, we're going to fast from all food for these three years. They would have died unless God miraculously kept them alive, which he could have done, but, but they don't do that. Jesus tells his disciples, behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. So the call for us this morning is that we need to know God's word so well, to know what he commands us to do so that we would know how to be wise and shrewd, innocent and cunning even. The Bible tells us not to test God. Deuteronomy 6, 16 is quoted in Luke 4 by Jesus, his temptation by Satan. And it says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So Daniel doesn't say, we're not going to eat anything and we'll see if God keeps us alive. Or for us, we don't say, I'm going to jump off this cliff, but God's going to save me. Don't be dumb. We, exp- we embrace appropriate medical care or necessary precautions. We don't die on every molehill that we face. But we also see Daniel's example of trusting God even when the outcome is uncertain. We see that even later on in Daniel. They say, I know what my God can do. And if he does, great. And if he won't, it's still worth it to follow him. So we see Daniel's example of trusting God even when the outcome is uncertain. 
And so this morning, brothers and sisters, we are to trust him and yet to be wise and shrewd as we navigate all the challenges that we face in this world. And we're going to face many of them and it will get only harder. And yet we're called to really test God. Malachi 3.10 says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and then and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. So at one level, we do not trust, we, we do not test God. We trust him. We don't test him. And at another level, we put him to the test. We really believe in his promises. We really cleave to what he said in his word. And we say, if you've said it, I'm going to obey it. And I'm going to see that you come through, God. Even if it means I lose my job. You you said, don't worry. Do I not care for you more than I care for the sparrows who do not reap nor sow? God commands the people in Malachi 3.10 to tithe and to give generously, putting him to the test. And he says, I'm going to lavish my blessings upon those who do not withhold, but trust and give generously. So here's the principle I want us to see this morning. We don't test God foolishly, but we cleave to God's promises faithfully. That's what we need to see in Daniel 1. We don't test God foolishly, but we cleave to God's promises faithfully. And let me just very practically suggest that this requires that we're all in community. As we navigate, do I die on this hill? Uh, Do do I take this stand? Do I refuse to do this? Or do do I let HR know that this will be my last day? Or that I'll, I'll do that, but here's my reservation. These are the difficult decisions that we're going to need to make as Christians who live in exile. We are sojourners and aliens here in this world. And we ought to make these types of decisions in community with other spirit-endowed believers and blood-bought believers who can give us wisdom and who can pray with and for us. So Daniel reveals that, yes, God is still sovereign. But not only is he sovereign, but he's giving his grace and favor to Daniel as he walks by faith. And in the same way God gave grace and favor to Daniel to walk by faith, he gives us grace and favor to walk by faith in this world, to live faithfully in exile. So we saw Babylonian domination, and then we see Daniel's faithfulness, and then now in 17 to 21, we see God's sustaining grace. The climax of the story was in verse 14, the 10-day test. Like, what's going to happen? And the resolution is that God sustained them. He gave them favor. Now, verses 17 to 21 set the stage for everything else that will come in the rest of the book of Daniel. It says, as for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. So again, we see this repetition. God gave Judah into exile. God gave Daniel favor. And now God gives Daniel and his friends learning and skill and wisdom. And Daniel in particular, understanding in visions and dreams that will come in in a significant way in the rest of this book. 
At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. So we notice that God gave Daniel favor. At the end of this three-year re-education, these four youths had everything that they needed, and it was all given to them by God. And it says that they were ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters. And I think the use of ten times isn't just that, you know, they were really smart, but the point is it's pointing back to the ten-day test. God sustained them in the ten-day test, and God sustains them now after these three years to be ten times as bright. God is behind their flourishing. And it's not just that they're smarter and more wise than all the other youths that went through this thing with them, but rather that they're, see that in verse 20, better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. These four new college graduates are smarter than everyone in the entire country. This is God's doing. What we're supposed to see here is not just that Daniel and his friends worked hard to learn the language and learn the literature, but that God had put them in positions of influence and power for such a time as this. Just like Joseph in Egypt and Esther in the king's court, God is putting his people in places so that they can be faithful to him. This is God's doing. In the final verse of the chapter, we get mention of King Cyrus. So we know that Daniel was exiled in the third year of Jehoiakim's reign, which was 605 BC. And and this verse tells us that he served until Cyrus conquered Babylon, which happened in 539 BC. So Daniel served for more than 70 years in exile. And he served in the royal court well into his 80s. And so let this be an encouragement to you. Whether you're 12 or 13 or 14 or 15 or 16 or you're 80, God can use you. God desires to use his people to live faithfully, carrying out his mission and purposes wherever he has placed us. Let this be an encouragement to our senior saints or to our global partners who are headed back to Japan. God is not yet done. One of the things I wanted to pray for the reasoners before they leave is that God would make these last two years more fruitful, more abundant than the previous 30. Let that be true. Because Japan is a place, a dark, dark place. 120 years ago, it was a half of a 1%. And today, it's a half of a 1%. The gospel has hit walls, and yet we know that God is sovereign. It's not as though the Japanese people are somehow so resistant that the forces of Satan are so strong there. And yet may we pray for folks like 
the reasoners, and many others to break the stronghold that Satan has there. God is sovereign, even in exile and even in Babylon. The book of Daniel is a mere 12 chapters, and yet it shows us the faithful service of a God-fearing servant in a position of leadership for over 70 years. So as we come to a conclusion, we get the answer to our question, is God still sovereign in a broken and sin-ravaged world? Answer, yes, absolutely. A hundred times over. God is seated on his throne, ruling and reigning from on high. Nothing surprises him. Even the exile of his own people, he foretold so that no one would miss it. No one would forget God is the one who is doing this. And yet even in the midst of exile, even in the midst of living in an evil and wicked nation, God has put his people in places of influence and leadership so that they might walk faithfully, carrying out his mission and purpose. Daniel and his friends, just think about their mindset. Their families have probably been killed. You're now an orphan. Your country has been devastated. And from all appearances, your God has just been dominated. And... This gets a little bit into speculation, but I think it's probably accurate, is that Daniel and his three friends have probably personally suffered disfigurement by being made into eunuchs themselves. If anyone had experienced trauma, it was these four guys. And yet in the midst of it all, God is sovereignly working out his plan. God will sustain and uphold his children to live faithfully. And so for us this morning, are you facing some hardships? Are you reeling from the brokenness of this world? Are you feeling how ravaged our world is from sin? Are you facing challenges in your workplace? Be reminded, God is sovereign, seated on his throne. And not only is he sovereign and, and he's somehow forgotten about us, but he so knows and loves and cares for his people, he upholds and sustains every single one of them in order that we might live faithfully in this world. Daniel was written to comfort a people in exile and to encourage us to continue to walk faithfully. Don't conform. Don't compromise. Don't give in. Don't crumble to the pressure. God himself stands before you and upholds you by his grace. One more thing I want to highlight. The story of Daniel unfolds to point us to another story of a faithful Israelite from the tribe of Judah who walked faithfully and did not compromise. Jesus. Satan tempts Jesus in the wilderness, in exile, if you will. And Jesus trusted in the promises of his father and refused to conform. So Jesus is this faithful servant, wiser than any that had come before him, who faithfully carried out God's mission. He went outside the camp, deep into exile, all the way to the cross so that he might die, suffer for our sins, 
rise again from the dead, rule and reign as the sovereign Lord. So Daniel, as much as you might have heard or maybe have seen on the flannel graph, is not about us daring to be as bold as Daniel or daring to close the mouths of lions. This isn't about us being more bold and courageous. I think the book of Daniel calls us to that, but mainly by looking at Jesus who has walked before us. Daniel is, is not, in some ways, for us to say, well, I'm going to do that. I'm going to put myself in a situation where I'm going to get thrown into a lion's den, metaphorically, and prove that God has to come through. We're more like the faceless and nameless exiles that were brought into Babylon and assimilated into the culture. But our hope is not in our ability to dare to be Daniel, but to trust in the faithful one that Daniel trusted in. Jesus brings his people all the way home. Even if we fail when the pressures come, even when we give in to compromise or conform, even if we fall short, Jesus remains faithful to his faithless people. 2 Timothy 2.13. And so our hope and our salvation rests on the greater Daniel, the Messiah and the Lord Jesus Christ, who went before us, who went all the way into exile and then rescued us out of exile and then will bring us all the way home. So this morning, look to Jesus. Don't look to yourself. This message is not about you growing more bold to be like Daniel, but this message is about us keeping our eyes fixed I'm the author of our faith, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the sovereign Lord. He sustains his saints. He upholds his children, and he will bring us all the way home. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you would do that work in us this morning so that we would see more of your beauty, that we would trust you more, that we would not trust in ourselves and that we would know that you are still sovereign, ruling and reigning, and that you will indeed uphold and sustain your children to live faithfully in our world. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others. But please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720-13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.